Alexander Stahl has used several decades to research and invest in commodities all over the world. In this episode, we discuss Alexander's passion for commodities, his investment philosophy, and why the next decade will be radically different from previous decades in commodities. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is produced by William Fransen. Given that you invest in commodities and try to find great companies, can we just go one sector abroad? And, and if you look at it as an, as an investor, could you also just be an asset allocation play on the different commodities that now we're bullish on oil and we're short on nickels, etc.? What's the difference between you know having an asset allocation mindset versus a stock picking mindset? Because you could maybe do both, but it has different trade-offs, right? Yeah, you you should do both, right? You should you should not just um, it's um, what what we do is look. I started my career um, um, firstly a little bit in investment banking, and then um, um, went operational, and then went back into private equity and public equity capital allocation. And so a total of 25 years and about at least 12 in capital allocation. And um, why do I say that? Because in private equity, you come from a very strong, let's look at the micro perspective. And you focus on this and what can we improve and how can we make this flower beautiful? And that is pretty much what I learned a lot, and uh, I like that too. Uh, as you know, in Petrotal, we are uh, in that situation now where I totally love our position, but I see opportunity for improvement. Okay. Now, um, that's not enough. So in um, I took a sector, then obviously we understand, let's stick with oil for a moment, but we can absolutely talk about all sorts of others and in fact i'd love to talk about others too. but um in 17 we started to look at the we always look at the sector of oil but we started to see issues coming in the oil sector already in 2018 we were convinced we have a supply issue to come here and for many reasons we published it People want to go on Seeking Alpha. That's where we published the paper. And it was widely discussed and so on. Even came in the Financial Times. Okay. Because at that time, everyone was still very bearish oil. And, um, and then it turned out we were a little early, not the least because of this COVID. Fair enough. I mean, COVID changed the demand side. It was a demand shock that we, that you, we have never seen, not, not, nothing close to it. In 2008, we lost something like a million barrels. Uh, the, the deepest recession the world has ever seen, um, uh, the, the great financial crisis. And in COVID, we lost something like, no one knows exactly, but about 22 million barrels from being restricted to move. So it was just a massive shock to the system and therefore caused a lot of damage to the sector once one more time. But anyway, 
Already back in 18, we were rather bullish and were actually positioned that way. And then came 2018 Q4. Tom did a little trick there. Um, and, um, you know, in the geopolitics of oil, uh, in the discussion with Iran, and um, gave them some, said to the Saudis, by the way, we need more oil, pump, pump, pump. You remember oil prices went up, went up back then. Then he gave the waiver to Iran, so therefore the, the Iran oil was also suddenly available, so suddenly the physical market wasn't so tight. And then Powell also increased interest rates to which I thought, so what, 25 basis points, but in this financial system that is highly leveraged, it matters. And then we had this massive collapse of oil in, from you know, 94 something to 50. Now positions, we had a fantastic year so far, then suddenly got hammered in November and certainly so in December. And I was like, wow, what am I doing here? You know, with my private equity stock picking thinking, you know, I need to, uh, I need to improve my game, right? I need to, I have a blind eye. And so we invested a lot of time into Marco. And um, rightly so, and not ourselves so much, but finding the right partners for us to advise us on Marco and on a daily basis. And that's what I do today. And, and so I'm extremely macro aware because I think it's important. At the same time, you need to be sector aware. You really need to understand the fundamentals of the sector and then you need to be company aware. And that combination, I think, makes for good allocation for over a, a period of time. And you can also uh, risk, uh, risk manage those positions then better than when, when you are macro unaware because the cycles or the mini the, the within cycles of a cycle can be so enormous that you want to manage that risk a bit. But also, just to add on that argument, you ha you have quoted uh, Charlie Munger in your investment letter in terms of you know the always the discussion about diversification versus just being passive, right? So, do you just want to say why you quoted him and how why you do that in terms of your investment letter? Yeah, look, uh, there are many styles out there, and uh, at the end of the day, I mean, I think if you charge a fee, you have to. You, I think you can only justify it if you if you add alpha. And if you cannot add alpha over time, you know, not one specific year, two specific years, but let's say six, seven, eight years, you have to provide it. Um, doesn't matter your style. And um, meaning alpha, the difference between uh, investing in an index like the S&P or the Norwegian or the Swiss SMI or something like that, and then uh, uh, your own selection of, of, of choosing. And, um, and what I think the main reason is why this is hard for most out there that are professionally in this business is in my view, because they are diversified. When you own 25 stocks, I think it's hard to find 25 ideas, believe it or not, that are outstanding, massively better than, you know, that are the next Google or the next this or next that. And that's just very hard. Uh, but I, th because the market is inefficient, but it's not that inefficient either. And, um, and the market is also narrative driven, moody, uh, can change its mind very quickly. So, so I think you need an edge in terms of um, um, 
you know what you really know that, that what Charlie calls the circle of competence or the Buffett. And, uh, and I think we have that, right? We define those resources investing in our circle of competence, not just, but mostly. And, um, and then you have to see something out of Stone Sea, and then you were gonna go in there, and then hopefully over five years, like in Petrotal, people start to realize, wow, that reservoir is completely misunderstood. This is not a 50 million reservoir, this is a 100 million barrel reservoir. And that changes everything, and that's where your alpha comes from over five years. And at the same time, however, you have to, um, you don't wanna lose your clients in times of volatility when COVID hits. Uh, and that's, um, you know, uh, the other side of the business that you somehow have to manage to, you kind of have to keep them entertained because you, you, you know, we just don't know what the share price is going to do tomorrow or thereafter. I mean, I just don't, right? If, you know, don't underestimate, you can be in exactly the right idea. Like there was an English company called IOG. We were large in, and, and, but there was one shareholder that was kind of became a forced seller. And then, you know, that shareholder has to sell and sell and sell. So that stock price is not going to go up. And these are important parts, of course, of your analysis. But what I'm saying is you don't always understand the timing of when, when such, a, you know, what I call a share overhang is in place or not. So there are many elements you need to coach and you need to keep at the same time your clients entertained. And, you know, believe me when I say, because I had a couple, um, you know, their clients often, you know, they seem to, be completely in agreement with what you are going to do until <laughs> until you get to the moment of volatility when they may be not in agreement anymore. And um, um, so don't underestimate. If you can handle volatility, that doesn't mean your client can. Although they may say so, but I think that's that's why it's so important. Also, by the way, Charlie and, and, and Buffett say it all the time. Right? You need to find a partnership with clients. If you just have clients that they expect you to perform and you expect them to pay your bills, that's not going to work out for the long term. I think that's going to be a very, you know, that's going to be a girlfriend, not a marriage. And, um, and I think um, you somehow have to find clients on the other side that really deeply understand what you do and why. And then kind of you explain them true truthfully right like very like swiss norwegian like no bullshit kind of this is what we do and then they buy into that and then hopefully go on a journey together for the long term and you're successful but if um, you know if, if if you have to manage every corner every quarter like most most guys on wall street um and i think they, they, they this job is a nightmare it's super interesting because I think uh, I think you you wrote it as well. Like when you find a case, you actually have like ten year horizon on that case. But in that ten year period, Red Bull right? should pay me. By the way, this is Red Bull. <laughs> They're also doing quite well. But giving that you know time is the biggest advantage to any investor. Straight to your point, it makes it so hard if you just like going to allocate capital on behalf of clients you don't really know, right? And you don't determine the market day up and day uh, day down, right? So it seems okay. like yeah, exactly. You have look. I, I think you you need a close relationship with your clients, or you or, or you're not going to have happy clients. My best, I have a um, a lot of clients that used to work with me 
in back Coke and Brown in the private equity company, you know, in the software uh, world that I used to run in operationally and so on, in, 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 in all sorts of, you know, kind of people that you picked up in the, in the journey of your life, where we have a deep understanding of each other and we trust each other and they know that I'm hardworking and that I'm serious and I really look at these things in series. Um, those, those, those relationships work fantastic, right? When we, even if we have those uh, high volatility, which we, we had in, in 2000, right? At 2020, um, you know, I just told them, don't look at it. Don't. We didn't buy rubbish. We have a fantastic reservoir. You know, we, we, what I'd like to say to them, really like Mongo, right? We buy companies, not stocks. If you're in the stock buying business, I find it very hard. If you're in the company buying business, few things that you really understand and not pretend to understand, industrially kind of understand, and on top have a bit of a risk management layer, I think you're going to be fine. It's not for everyone because we are, look, there are many styles, many ways to roll. Um, um, and I, I don't think mine is made for others, right? Um, that's me. I think everyone has to find out who they are and what they can do best. You know, some, there are incredibly talented people out there also on Twitter, you know, high frequency traders or, you know, these quant guys. And they just don't like it. They, they say, you know what they say on Twitter? They say, oh, Let's not have risk over the weekend. Now I'm thinking, what are they talking about? Right? But that's how they are. They like to have you know, uh, a daily thing. For me, that would be a nightmare because when do I read? When do I think? When do I study? If I have to manage everything daily. Definitely. So how do you like to structure a day? Because when you have all the commodities to look at and you're trying to find very good cases, do you have a clear structure or do you feel like it's a bit serendipity, luck, you read something? You no, no, it, or do you no. have like a structure from A? No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't. Uh, I, I, look, maybe that works too. This scuttlebutt thing that uh, is talked about in books uh, by Peter Lynch and so on. But look, I, I, uh, I have a, a, a rather structured approach. So um, first of all, I think you need routine. Routine, um, look, I, I used to play a lot of, I, I used to do all sorts of sports. And in some of them, I really wanted to be very good, right? And then I learned a lot about our brains and so on. And for instance, in golf, you don't get anywhere if you don't have routine in front of that shot. And that's a process that needs to be very clear in your brain in order to become a single handicap or scratch player. You, you, you never become that kind of player without a clear routine that you need. And, and I think in investing, it's the same. And there are many ways I think there to go to. My routine is, you know, for instance, I have dogs and I go and walk with those dogs for an hour, you know, that no one can take that away from me between 11 and 12. Sounds incredible boring life. I love it, right? Because we swear... <laughs> we Swiss have uh, the, this privilege, this enormous privilege of you know, you live in Zurich, you go in the car, two minutes later, you are in the most beautiful forest, right? In London, it takes you, I don't know, three hours to get there. And then you walk with your dogs, you come back. And that's my way of having my, my, my brain 
consolidated my thoughts, you know, my anxieties, my my anything, right? My creativity comes out. So, so that's one. I think you need routine. I think you need to wake up at a certain point and go to sleep to a certain point in a, in a, you know in a routineish way in order to maximize uh, your output. I think you you need to bring in you need to come into this game with the right tool set. I mean, if you, you know, if you're slow in, if you don't know how to do certain things that you need to do, I mean, you cannot go to a ski race and you need to figure out how to put your skis on, right? It just doesn't work. So that thing you obviously need to bring to the game, but then uh, I think what I try and do is to have the least amount of meetings, the least, I mean, I literally try to avoid them at all. Um, I don't like to go to conference. I don't know. Uh, what I like to do is just to, to read and think and, 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 and go about these things of these companies that we know well um, on a daily basis. And then if there is something that catches my eyes, then I like to call them the company and ask them about it. Give you an example. I don't like to be pitched by someone. Oh, you know, have you heard of? Serica energy, maybe that's a good thing, and so on. And then they sell it to me, and then I don't go about this freely anymore. Right. So rather my approach then is okay. I know Serica for a long time. We've been in there twice, and uh, and we re-entered the position. This UK gas player, and then uh, there is this angle about uh, you know a development that they do uh, that looks very interesting. And then I read and talk to some, you know, we work, we have a loose network of, of specialists. Like I talk to a friend of mine, geologist and say, what do you think? And what, nah, nah, nah. we go about this data and then I co-manage. And then usually I have someone with me on the call that knows a lot more about these things than I do. I'm not a geologist. And then, and then we ask two or three or four questions in the most neutral possible way so that I get a feeling what it really can be. And then we take some assumptions on it and, and, and that's how we go about it. You know, if you, if you talk too much to managers, you know, the good ones, <laughs> they really know how to sell their company, right? And then you, you, you think in, in the States, you find a guy that tells you his reservoir is very bad, by the way. Oh, please, Alexander, we'd like you to know this reservoir. Just makes it right, but nevertheless, it's gonna be the stock's gonna go. No, it's super so you have to have an ability to find these things out for yourself and and to create the network. By the way, I don't think for that you need to have hundreds of employees. You need to have a network and access to people that like to help you. And then uh, you know, uh, um, or something. we pay also a lot of 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 fees to external advice where we think now this is important we need to understand that in detail and um, have an expert on the on this specific question and then we feel comfortable but, but isn't it that like the funniest part of being an investor because you have to have everything at play at the same time you need to be stubborn on something but also very flexible and adaptable and there's a big herd mentality and you don't know if, if the herd is right or is it wrong so you have to sort of be extremely good at separating noise from signal, right? And maybe that's the hardest part. And maybe you can't get that level until you have had enough experiences because it's easy to say that you're not going to be convinced by good management, but maybe you're not conscious about that for the first 10 years in your career. Maybe you are because everybody can be sold to. 
it's, yeah, easy to, it's, it's easy to say that no one can sell me something, but we all get sold to all day, right? All day long. And victims of it too. Now, um, um, no, you bring up very, very powerful points. So first of all, I think the experience curve is something you need. I think if you're, you know, Buffett started himself in a, in a, a, a when he was extremely young, you know, he called something like 14 when he did his first investment. So, but Buffett is Buffett, right? He has an amazing brain and an amazing emotional uh, game he brings, uh, he brings to this. But um, I don't think many of us are like him, but I think what, what you are saying here is I would like to take that to the, the emotional world of this job. And I think there you need to really have, uh, you need to come to this game, whatever that age is, when you have a good understanding about yourself. Um, because I think that it's where the, when the emotions kick in, you know, when things go up and you become too excited or when things go down, you become too depressed. And so that's, that shows me you cannot handle the emotional side of the business. Or you probably haven't done your homework at all or very little, right? And then the price uh, influences you so much that you assume the price is always right and therefore uh, you are wrong, right? And then you shouldn't be in that business at all. And right? if you don't make the price your opportunity, but your problem, you, 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 should, you should not invest in, in public leases. So, but that could make you a super investor in the private sector, right? Where you don't have these constant quotes every single day. But the emotional side, I, I, I think you have to understand who you are, what, what makes you tick on the emotional side. Uh, you know, read these, these uh, you know, Daniel Kahneman, thinking fast and slow, these kind of things. Um, Dale Carnegie, uh, you know, the, the psychological side of the business, and then find out whether, whether you are that person. And I, I think some people are just born with, with, with that. They are made for that and others are not. But that's super interesting because, yeah, are you on that side that you think you have to be sort of born with this to handle this up and down? Because if you lose clients' money, right, like at least in my experience, like losing my own money doesn't hurt at all. If I believed in an idea. I'm like you. I'm like you. I, I find it much easier if, if I'm uh, positioned and I have volatility. I don't really, I really don't mind it, but I mind it for my clients. It hurts, but I had to learn that. You have to, you have to kind of go through that. You have to go through it. And you know, some clients gonna be angry with you too, although you've done a fantastic job, but, but you are just uh, positioned in a way that, uh, that doesn't show the rewards yet. And you know, you're right and it takes more time and, and you go through that process and it's painful. I find nothing funny about it, but it's, it comes with the territory. Or the, the alternative is, which uh, how I started on the, on the public side is, is try to have enough money so you can do it for yourself. You live a humble life and, and then you compound uh, what you have and, and you don't have clients, which I think is, is, is a very powerful setup. You know, to be in the client business is a very, don't underestimate, to, to build a business where you have clients is also not the same as to allocate capital, right? You have to distinguish. There is a job of a good CIO that, that understands, that sees the research, that knows how to allocate, that does the portfolio side, which is, by the way, some argue also a different job, portfolio management versus research. 
but um, um, let's assume that's the same. So you combine that, but then there is the client side, the selling side, the schmoozing side, the entertaining side. And then there is, if you want, the CEO side where you have to make this a business, you have employees and everything needs to come together. But isn't that a perfect example? Because if you take Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger on one side, and then you pair them up with, you know, the guys who have built Blackstone and BlackRock, even though there are investors at heart, it's a very different journey. It's like, it's like two different totally. sports. That's like uh, mini golf and, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, scuba diving. It's just totally different. They, they, uh, the black rock guy, I mean, uh, incredible was he, what this Larry Fink has done, but um, that has nothing to do with what Buffett has done. You know, they, <laughs> I don't know how, much, how many trillions they run now, but I, and I have no idea how he created that. And I don't know, I have never met him, of course, and, and I cannot comment about it, but yeah. it's incredible. But it, I'm absolutely right. sure what he has done has nothing to do with what profit has done. Yeah, because just to add one concept. So I'm a person who really hates internal politics. So internal politics happens as soon as you get five to 10 people on board. And if you get a thousand people on board, it's like, Maybe half of your day is spent on internal politics, right? So just imagine building those companies like Blackstone and BlackRock, how much of that percentage has been internal politics, hiring, firing, you know, buying up companies, selling companies. While on the other side, you can actually maybe be an investor for, let's say, 50% of your time. And then the other 50% is clients, that, that stuff, right? But it's just so. And those are important questions, and you wanna you wanna position yourself there where you feel most comfortable. And and I would argue, um, I have very little desire to go my shop, you know, from outside, because I just, you know, I love clients. I love to have good relationship with clients, but I I like harmony and I like an understanding and and respect of each other. And if, if I realized that, uh, you know, I had clients before where I simply said, look, we are not made for each other. And there was no damage. Just one client once called me and said, by the way, you know, uh, for me personally, uh, the, the performance is 14% or, or 12% and for, the, for uh, that specific year. And, and for, the, for the company side of the business, it's 16%. And, and then he wanted to go into all sorts of arguments about it. And I, I explained to him, I said, yeah, but... But you told me, you know, to, to be careful here or this or that. So I kind of tailor-made the portfolio a bit for him. And then he underperformed a bit the, the company side. And, um, and I just realized in that discussion, there was the wrong uh, arguments coming, uh, coming out. You know, there was like the... Um, you know, coolie politics. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, you're not made for the job. And um, yeah, so um, my, for me, it's very important to um, have a, a loyal base and that I prefer it small than big uh, and having all these, you know, the bigger you are, the more different the clients will be and the more institutional the setup has to become and the more rules they're going to apply to you. Also, this entire, you know, if you have a fund, we, we have managed, we have managed accounts for our clients. If you have a fund, and that's on the Luxembourg law, then there is a diversification rule that applies. And that's exactly, I think, one of the problems why it's so hard to perform. So I try to avoid that. 
Definitely. But I think these examples are great for people to think about because it goes back to your point is that you have to know yourself. What situation do you like to be in and what situation do you hate to be in? So if you know that from yourself, like the best part would be to experience those situations. So maybe try if you work for some companies, you will actually get a feeling of that. But before you decide your investor career, if you answer the question, what do I want and when do I think I perform? It's much easier to pick the right route, right? Yeah, and 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 I think for many of us, the, the truth is we have to. Uh, life is not a straight line, and you're not going to figure it out uh, at first, and and so maybe you have to go and walk a little bit in the wrong direction first to then adjust. But I think you should have the the courage to adjust when you see like this is not me. You know, and I, I'm not sure, I wouldn't advise anyone, go for your passion, go for your passion. I, I think passion is more than the outcome there than it is the input factor, right? I think you, you just have to do what, what you think you, 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 you are good in, you know well, you, of course, you know, like it somehow, you know, it should be a bit of tap dancing to work the buffer book, right, rather than, than, than finding it not interesting, but... You know, the, the more you know, the, the, the better you become. I think the, the output is passion, right? And you, you start to like it a lot. And certainly you need, you know, you need to like it enough, let's say, to, to go through those patches of difficulties. It's so true. And I also and think... that you like... don't throw the towel on the first Kieselstein, we say in German, the first granule, a little thing on, the, on your way. You know, oh, this is too complicated. That's, that's also not going to take you there. But, but I also think if, if you're just going to discuss the word passion, I think way too many people start off with what am I passionate about? But I think that's like a blind alley to start. Like you should start with what gives value to other people and track your way back and see if one of your passions aligned with giving value. Because you can be passionate about a lot of projects that there's not a lot, a lot of willingness to pay for. And then you run into a big problem because your passion doesn't get you paid. And then you don't have to... And then you get a terrible life because you get stress and you don't have money for your life, right? So it all adds up. But I think maybe just start with a simple question, what gives value to people? And then you can work your way backwards. Yeah, although, uh, of course, but um, I, I think you'll find that uh, this is often not so easy to answer. I mean, if you and I say, okay, let's do something together and you know, even start a small community on Twitter, it's not so easy to know what makes people tick and suddenly, you know, you, you think you do something or say so or help someone that is amazing. No one cares, right? And then you, do, you say something which is like, like, of course, right? Ammonia is, has to do with food and then that goes completely viral. And you think like, <laughs> what were you thinking? Yes, high natural gas prices is indeed the problem for food, yes. Oh, you didn't know that. Okay, so here is the 20,000 retweets, right? Suddenly in one day, you go like. Yeah, but the world is very unpredictable. So sometimes you don't know, but then you have to at least experiment, like you're saying now with the Twitter cases. So then it's all about doing the Jeff Bezos argument of, okay, let's run 10 experiments. And if two experiments goes very well, maybe there is a product here somewhere. Yeah. You know the the software guys these get these these days. I think they 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 are very 
let's go out, let's try, let's see what works and then improve or close it down again and so on. So, but that's obviously a little hard, <laughs> you know, you cannot just, okay, let, let me try and do a hedge fund. It didn't work three weeks ago. No, so, um, but, um, that's a very yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, look, I, I think, I didn't think of becoming, uh, you know, exposed to to public equities and call it, I'm a, call it for simplicity reason. I'm a hedge fund manager. I didn't see myself doing that when I was 25. I think the journey uh, it cannot always be understood uh, exactly, and um, at some point, you know, you can also be in something which is actually very interesting and then. You should probably stick there, although it doesn't make you like, uh, you know, it gives you that factor of, of making a lot more money, right? I think people are often also, you know, if you're just trying to make the most money, then, uh, uh, then I think this industry is not the right industry because I, I think it's much harder to make money here than people understand. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. No, if you, let, let me explain from a psychological side. Like, so, so what we do is we really understand the company, we invest in it, and then you know we are exposed, and then that share price goes against you because I don't know, Powell, Jerome Powell, in, uh, raises interest rates seventy five basis points instead of twenty five, which everyone expects. Okay, so the stock goes down. So now do you feel miserable because you? you just lost on, on in the book money. You know, if money matters too much to you, I would almost argue you're probably not going to become a good capital allocator. It's a very interesting perspective. And I think you, I agree so much because like, if you take the public markets, like, I don't know if there's research who can say this 100%, but how much do you really know what drives the price? Because there has to be so many factors that there's impossible for you to know exactly what goes around. Look, uh, even even uh, we we're long enough now in this business to 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 make comments about that. And in most cases, I uh, I didn't know what, what moved the price. I give you an example. We were big in Songa Offshore. Do you remember that company, which was taken out by by uh, was I going to send you our investment paper for you for your own amusement? Uh, but we took a long time to analyze it and so on and. And then um, we went in uh, and um, it moved down immediately 20% on us on some technical reason. Um, and then within a week or so, they corrected again. And I never really knew why. You know, then I called the broker and said, why this? And that? Yeah, but you, you know, it's really hard, even if you if you do this day in day out. Um, and people, uh, clients, sometimes even call me, which they shouldn't, right, and say, "Why? Why has it moved now?" And I think uh, look at those price movements once a day, or maybe twice a day max, but maybe once a week. But the reason we look at it is simply to say, should we buy more when we like something very much? And, with Petrotal, we have this, um, you know, um, um, local protest, um, which means very little for NAV, right? If you if you NAV something, if you really do the model, I mean, uh, a twenty day protest has just no impact on your NAV over ten years, just none. And um, okay, so so 
then suddenly the price overreacted and went from you know 30 to 16 in a week and i my god what's going on here and then we took opportunity of that and we bought more and more and more because i i thought has to be that kind of news about the protest right and um and then you go for it but um yeah i i look to to understand why prices move and to kind of become a day trader i think that's um you know some people do it and i'm sure there are uh, successful people doing it out there i haven't met them personally but i'm sure some some know what they are doing but i i think that's you know if i shouldn't say it, it wouldn't be for me i mean it would make my life miserable I mean, that's the, like the, uh, I mean, obviously there, there are people great at anything in life. Like if someone can trade on like high frequency, like, of course there are short people, but then it also comes to a matter of like, okay, let's look at the time frame. Can we, what's the scenario? Can we simulate this in other worlds? So it just goes back and forth. Right. So instead of like wasting time on, on saying a day trader should exist or not, right. Maybe you should just try to find your edge and then excel at your edge. Exactly. That I, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, I would argue a high frequency trader is actually like a kind of a software engineer. He couldn't care less about the company, that I guarantee. Right? And um, and so if you are that and, and you know how it works, you know, I wouldn't moralize these things either. You know, are they good or bad for, for, for capital markets? I think whatever provides liquidity, I would argue, is good for markets. At the moment, in commodities, you see that we don't have enough liquidity. We don't have enough participation, and that's why prices move so extremely. And, and, and so, you know, sure, no, you have, to, you have to know who you are and then try and approach it from that end. But looking at commodities, because let's just give the listeners and audience like a sneak peek into your brain looking at commodities, because I, I took, uh, took down the uh, 2021 returns in commodities, and there's like this enormous spread, right? You have coal and crude oil, like definitely on top uh, with high returns, and then you have silver on the bottom, etc. How do you like in today, of course, you can change your opinion tomorrow. Let's be aware of that. This is not like... Uh, um, how do you say like uh, the correct answer at every every situation? But what are you looking at now that makes you really intrigued for 2022? Do you have like top five picks at all, or is it too hard to call that in the no, yearly basis? No, it's not too hard to call. No, we can go through that. Um, oil uh, remains a top pick because the look we have a let, let, let me start differently. What happened in the last three weeks, four weeks, uh, changes the commodity landscape in a big way. And that's the war. Russia invaded Ukraine um, and the West sanctioned uh, Russia for it in the most severe possible way. And that will be uh, uh, becoming more, not less, in my view, in, you know, in the very short term. So there will be more sanction packages to come. Now, Iran was similarly sanctioned, swift sanction and, and, and other measures. And it lost 30% of GDP overnight. And I think for Russia, this will be a big deal along those lines. Now, why do I mention that in, in, in regards to commodities? Because Russia is a commodity powerhouse. And... Um, 
So Russia provides, um, you know, produces 10 million of the 10, 100 million oil uh, uh, per day, um, or I should say liquids. Um, but uh, Russia produces 10 million crude oil and um, and so condensate per day and uh, exports about seven and a half of those. Not in the form of crude, five in the form of crude, but two and a half in the form of products or diesel. Coming to Europe, right? And um, and that's seven and a half percent of uh, of this market. And I told you before earlier that commodities are pricing at the margin. You know, the last molecule that we have or don't have makes the price. And um, and here we we therefore have a massive uh, dislocation uh, in how commodities work. And on that basis, you can be absolutely sure that commodities, you know, oil needs a long needs a first of all. You know, not a peace agreement it needs a sanction lift. Okay, and that's the, those are two very different things. So don't expect after in a peace agreement, which I hope in a couple of weeks, I don't know, uh, at some point we'll have a peace agreement. You know, it's not going to change anything for oil because uh, although these uh, you know crude oil and gas uh, is technically uh, carved out of the sanction list. People are self-sanctioning, and in terms of how commodities are handled on a daily basis, it nevertheless has a huge impact. So, letter of credits, which is you know a form of financing that you need to ship a barrel from A to B, at the moment they don't clear. Right. So, if you want to bring in a, a, a barrel of, of Russian crude. Uh, uh, the bank and both counterparties need a letter of credit. The, the banks won't, won't clear those letter of credits. Those barrels cannot unload, so you don't touch them. So, so it, the reality of the, and that's just one little aspect I mentioned. So, so there is a lot that doesn't work at the moment. Whether the sanction language says you can can import or, or crude is excluded or not excluded. So, and that's a big deal. And so we go on. And then um, Russia is, um, you know, 20% of nickel, of world nickel production. So it's a big deal there too. Now, the transportation system for nickel is different than is obviously for crude or gas. And we should come to gas in a moment. Uh, but nevertheless, we'll see whether that nickel easily finds its way to, to China. It will, but there will be disruption. There is a period now where the... the, the the value chains, the transportation side of a commodity business needs to readjust. And that's not a thing of a day or two. These things take months. And then um, 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 we go to copper. Uh, Russia is about four and a half percent of production, more of reserves. So it matters there too. Again, if it would be 1% in each, it would be a big deal. So we go to gas. Um, it's a third of the European market. So the European market, which Norwegians, I'm sure that you know these numbers inside out, but the, the, the European market is called it a 500 BCM billion cubic meter market. And um, Russia is 150 BCM of that per annum. Either way, without Norway, we would be completely lost. So that let's have that very clear something. I mean, Norway is the lifeline of Europe at the moment. Um, and um, the 150 BCM 
will be very hard to replace, but that's the process we're in now. Those molecules flow through the pipes that are still on. There were three pipe systems and the fourth one that wanted to be added. So there was the North, North Stream, so German, English word combined, North Stream pipeline, that transported into Germany from Russia. And then there is a pipe going, uh, the Yamal pipe. And those are the big ones I'm saying now. There are smaller ones that go the Yamal. And then there is, um, call it the Welke, um, uh, you know, line that goes into Austria, so to speak. And these through main... Um, systems, pipeline systems, um, they still work and they still deliver uh, gas. But what, why is then the gas market so nervous? Because we don't know yeah, at any point in time, they could decide, hey, tomorrow you need to pay in ruble, which he announced two days ago. Or, hey, by the way, tomorrow we don't want it in ruble. You can also pay in gold. Well, uh, 150 BCM, you know, at, uh, at the moment, the price of, of gas in Europe is what 110 euro per megawatt hour. So 150 BCM is about 1.5 billion megawatt hours. So that you multiply, that's, that equals about $170 billion per year. How do you gonna pay that in gold? I don't know exactly the gold reserve numbers now, but it's not gonna be so easy. Um, um, and that every year, right? And then you have to transport it, <laughs> right? You're not going to do click. You have to have kind of a rail <laughs> shipping 170 billion uh, uh, gold, but uh, you, uh, you know, that's dollars. And then you convert it into gold pearls and so on. So we could do that calculation quick, but you, you see it's all, it's all getting very rather totally, absurdly complicated, impossible. So, um, but Putin made the decision, you know, I always tweet like, you know, what European politicians, you know, the Schultz, Mr. Schultz, the Bundeskanzler of Germany, obviously he's very concerned, the Italian uh, Mario Draghi, of course, also. But my point is, you should be concerned because you actually have to get on with it because you don't know when the other side actually makes you force to abandon the Russian oil because they request you to either pay it in a way that you cannot, or he simply goes so ideological, he has to bring back the Soviet Union idea and so on. And so he turns off the gas as well. He hurts himself a lot, obviously, but he thinks he can do it. He obviously thought he can go into Ukraine and do that. And it turns out that's not so easy. So expect it. So we kind of, we, in my view, that's why the market is pricing gas so nervously, right? Nine, uh, 110 um, euro per megawatt hour, that translates for your audience. I think everyone understands barrels a little bit better, but that translates into what, $220 per barrel. But given this, yeah. it's- Barrel of oil equivalent, right? But just given the situation where you sort of, I don't know, like, is this information, do you feel like from an investor standpoint, it's like already priced into the commodities and then you have to take a risk adjusted bet? Or is this like, do you feel it's not priced in at all? And there's huge asymmetry coming up now. There's you... huge asymmetry coming up. Um, so so the, the, I urge people to really uh, 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 don't anchor on what has happened between 2010 and 2021. 
try to look at commodities as if that didn't exist. So you get rid of the anchoring effect that is well described in psychology um, because it doesn't help you, it doesn't give you any useful information about what is going on right now. You really have to be radical in your thinking or you're going to be completely on the wrong side of history. Now, is the price of gas rational at the moment and has anything to do with the cost curve? No. But why is it the price? Because number one, if Vito, which sits here in Geneva and manages about 10% of you know, the oil market, call it the oil and gas market, or Trafigura, which sits here in Switzerland and manages about 6% of, or 5% of the uh, oil and gas market, the metals market and so on, or Glencore, which manages, uh, sits here in Zug and so on, you know, these big trading houses, Mercuria, um, they at the moment need to deliver if they want to transport the gas molecule that is priced. Uh, you know, uh, the other day when they were sitting here in Geneva at the FT conference, they were saying, okay, on a 94, I quote, now I don't make it up, I quote him. You can look it up on my Twitter account, you'll find the quote, him explaining it, the Vito guy. On a 94 euro price, he needs to bring 80 euro margin. What does that mean for your audience? That means if you have a, a loading of say 100 million worth of oil that they need to deliver, that they need to ship, it means in the past they may needed 10 million, 5 million capital on their balance sheet. Now they need 80 million capital on the balance sheet. So a bit like in the financial crisis, the business has kind of changed overnight and it's a lot more capital intensive to the point where they, these uh, big trading houses were probably at the brink of bankruptcy. Now that's a careful thing to say here for your audience, but I think it's not that off. You know, it was maybe a de facto kind of liquidity crisis for them, which they obviously very, very well managed and they knew how to address it, but it means their business shrinks. The capital requirement went up. It's exactly as when we go through the financial crisis for banks where they needed like five or seven and a half percent capital quota tier one, and now they need 15. So it changes your business. You, you lend less when you come and say, okay, no, no, they say, no, but you know, and we need this, and we need more, you know, mortgage, no, not 70%, only 50, right? And so on the, on the house price. And that's exactly what's going on in commodity right now. So they all need more capital to just do the same as they did three weeks ago. The market is in an emergency room. And I think your audience should know that. And that emergency room is not going to go away until sanctions go away. So now for your audience, what, when do sanctions go away? In my view, that's a view I personally have. But so far, you know, I said he will invade Russia and he did. And many people said, oh, you have no, no, no. So maybe, maybe our way of thinking and looking at things is, is, is maybe a little bit more creative than most. So my point is sanctions, in my view, cannot go away quickly. Why do I say that? Because 
Mr. Putin broke an unwritten law of international relations. And that is that you cannot threat with nuclear, call it a nuclear attack, um, even though you have that power, you just do not threat with it. Even in the times of Khrushchev, the Kennedy crisis in the 60s, uh, they actually didn't threaten each other with a nuclear attack. They were a crisis, and he said, you know, uh, JFK demanded Khrushchev to, to remove uh, uh, those weapons from Cuba, uh, which then became the Cuba crisis, but it wasn't a, a threat, a direct of, I may do it. Now, if you go today on Russian TV, I don't understand Russian, but uh, you know, we have a lot of translation these days and all sorts of stuff. You know, they literally say it on TV in their propaganda day in, day out. Putin goes out and says on the mic, by the way, I'm happy. You know, if you don't, if you do this or that, I'm gonna throw a nuke on you. So this, whether he does or not is, is, is not my topic here. I, I, I don't wanna, uh, also caused the wrong discussion here of fears. I think that's, you know, what he says and what he does, two different things, although he's, he did a lot of what he said. But let us not go in that rabbit hole. What I'm trying to say is he threatened the United States, the UK, France, the, uh, you know, call it the, the three big when it comes to nuclear in the West, with... Um, a nuclear attack he even threatens Poland, but they don't have nuclear weapons. As a, as a you know, he, he, I think he threatens all of us, and um, and so you cannot go back to business. I think what we need from here is a po we need a post-Putin time for sanctions to lift. I'm not sure that's going to be soon because somehow he can keep it together in his uh, corrupt system over there, and then two. We need checks and balances, or alternatively, kind of a dearmament of nuclear warheads of 7,500 nuclear warheads. I think that, that what I just said is going to be a non-starter, right? It's a very proud, uh, history-rich, uh, incredible nation, Russia. So I, I don't think they they, they would uh, allow a dearmament. But, but at the same time, the West will say, well, if you don't want that, how can we make sure that not the, the next dictator comes and threatens us again? And maybe we can go in an accident. So I think we are in a, this is the overarching dilemma that we are in. And I don't see a solution anytime soon. And I think that's going to drive, uh, you know, commodities came into this overarching problem already with underinvestment, undersupply, under this. Every, every single one of them has its own problem. And then on the demand side, we go, uh, we have the net zero topic where we try to have much more metals and so on. So the demand side is actually for many commodities is going to explode. The supply side doesn't work. And now on top, we created this kind of overarching dilemma where we cannot sanction lift, um, in my view, I mean, maybe a politician kind of finds a way out and says, ah, let's let the world go back. To, but I think in the past that hasn't worked. The appeasement policy hasn't worked as with Hitler. So I, I don't think the politicians now are, you know, and let me put it this way. I think the motivation is now here not to appease anymore, but to resist. Um, on a European uh, level and hopefully in the, in the US context. And if that is true, what I'm saying, 
then uh, that's the context of the of the commodities we are in, and that means um, uh, they they you know it, it has all sorts of consequences for all sorts of them, and you have to go through each uh, to understand. But this is why I think um, uh, when I tweet in this decade, unless you understand commodities well enough, I think you will have a very hard time to navigate capital allocation, this is the context of it. And um, again, we can go again deeper and deeper on, on all of them, but, but I, I think for your audience, this is what one needs to understand. You know, I don't think gas prices can relax much because with this uncertainty that we have, it means that the price needs to of European gas, let's go back to gas, which is important to your Norwegian uh, audience, I think, has to stay high in order to incentivize the marginal LNG barrel, liquefied natural gas, that stuff that comes from far away, that is like kind of ship, the transports, it is like a pipe, you have to think, that brings it in from the US, right, which, which, which has it, which is a net, net export of gas, then brings it in from Qatar, which is a net export, and brings it in from Australia, which is an export, but these are the big three, and then we have some from Africa, Nigeria, and so on, doesn't matter, but those, those compete to also bring it to Asia, which is called the 600 BCM, 650 BCM market, and that wants, by the way, to become a, you know, bigger market than the US, which is a 1,000 BCM per annum market, again, per, uh, billion cubic meter per year. So the Asians want to replace coal with gas, so they grow the gas. So, so, and they are also net exporter, they don't produce it, uh, you know, like Norway, uh, too much of it, but too little of it. So they, they all compete for the gas. So what needs to happen in the price finding? The European price needs to be above the Asian price significantly so to justify uh, a um, you know the rerouting and to for a decision making from say Australia. Okay, most of it comes from the US at the moment, which is a cheap route. But in the future, if we need to replace 150 BCM of Russian gas, that's so much that we need to replace a third at the moment, only 11 or 12% is LNG of that 500 BCM market. So, so we, we need to become so much bigger. Um, uh, so we need to keep that arm open, number one. Number two, we need to create additional terms. Number three, we need to probably curtail our, our consumption pattern. Because the, 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 the last part is obviously where we kind of supply and demand can meet again. Um, assuming that uh, a Russian gas, although flowing today, is a massive uncertainty in the future. That's why I argue and I promote and I try to help people to at least make some money on the, in the market when they have to pay all these extra bills on top, you know, to look at a company like Serica Energy, which is a UK gas player, which is a one-on-one -on -one, uh, beneficiary of that situation, I think. That shoulder season, meaning, you know, in the summer, the gas price is usually low because we don't consume it. We now fill up our storages for the winter season. Um, but I think that shoulder season is not going to be looking anything like the last 10 years. How should it? On that, you know, a supply and demand situation, and you add the geopolitical backdrop on it, and, uh, and you add... You know, um, the technical aspects of the physical market, of the Trafigures and Vitals, 
put it all together, you know, and I think people are still in a group think. I'm shocked when I read these experts, you know, thinking about these things day in, day out, and then they have the price tag, and I look at it and think, so how is that gonna get bring us the gas into Europe? You know, I think people really have to be a bit, uh, go the extra mile here and, and start to think about these things in a clear, what I call clear thoughts. And that's the backdrop we're in, and, and that backdrop is not going to change. How can you change? And, um, and, and then there is always this, you know, 10% that, you know, we like to think in probabilities too, sorry. It's perfect. You have a, for those guys listening, we have a new guest joining the show, but I guess it, he, he or she is ready yeah. for the one he's, hour trip. Uh, I picked her up on the street um, and she's, uh, she's, I think her brain is bigger than mine and she understands everything. I just asked her to wait a little bit. No, but the, the point is um, um, we uh, isn't this just we, we think storm, in, right? sorry when I finish that we think in probabilities now don't yes. but I don't want to uh, scare you all and like, like he's a fanatic no we think in probability trees all right and we always have scenarios but at the moment you you bet that we have a very high probability rating for what I just explained and 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 of course I pay attention to to other outcomes uh, and I think a peace agreement will take our gas price down immediately for a moment but only to go back up as you saw it in the last three months right it's this roller coaster way because but on a very high level right of course gas prices come down on a piece of grim and everyone says, oh, now we're back to normal, only to find out three weeks later nothing has changed. But, but isn't it also, just to keep it simple for people, that extreme action also often lead to extreme outcomes? So you had COVID, that's an extreme case, right? Everyone is locked at home, extreme, you know, volatility. And also a war in Europe is also a very extreme case. So you should expect extreme outcomes, long-term consequences, right? I would agree with that statement, and I would argue that Europe, um, although they cannot admit it publicly, the politicians, when I say Europe, I mean von der Leyen, von der Leyen or uh, Schulz or, or Macron and so on, I mean, uh, how can they not work on complete energy independence from Russia? You know, you have to understand, my, my, my family background is actually cotton. Right? My father used to be, uh, this, I think, at some point, the second largest cotton trader in the world in the 80s. So I, I you know, from as a baby already, commodities was a topic. So why do I say that? Because he imported, exported a lot of cotton from Russia. And that was so Soviet Union, I should say, former Soviet Union. And the former Soviet Union was the most reliable partner in commodities throughout the entire Cold War. Uh, was there times of uncertain and so on? Yes, but there was never a breach of contract. Putin also broke that unwritten rule quickly. Now, if you go on my tweets, you'll find some of the history of Gazprom and its bad acting, especially in Eastern Europe, for Moldova, blackmailing Moldova, Ukraine, or this or that, and so on. So they played around with the gas as a weapon all the time, but not to the major clients. Germany, Italy, UK, uh, you know, other Eastern European countries, Austria, 
being a major client and so on, the hub for, for Eastern Europe. Now they did. They did it 18 months ago. They didn't fill the European storage, which Gazprom has, which caused us to be to go low into with storage numbers into this crisis. And then they continued to play games and they always said A and they always did B, except that we have data to see what they say and what they do. The classic watch what they do, not what they say thing, right? And now on top, they threaten with it, right? Medvedev the other day, Medvedev, the uh, vice chairman of, of, of Gazprom came out and more or less said, well, okay, you, you declare economic war on us, so well, why don't we do that on you too? So this is the world we're in, and, and you're absolutely right to summarize it, that we are in a tectonic shift of how we look at this world and it's at the globalization of it and how trade works and what I the other day tweeted and said, you know, we uh, we are in a world where the cheap trade, in my view, is over. Right? Are we going to trade with each other? Of course, we do in some form. I'm not so sure about Russia long term, but you know, at some point again, probably yes. But um, um, the short term, while Putin is around, that you know, everyone wants to minimize that, not maximize it or keep it running. But uh, um, and self-sanctioning is a is a big deal uh, in what is going on right now in Europe too. So for for you all, but um, but the point is, I think that um, global peak globalization thing that I would argue is definitely over in the commodities world, and um, there we have to be new trading routes to accommodate that market, and that's going to be a massive challenge in itself, and. That always creates price inefficiency, no price discovery. That's actually, you know, the perfect ending because the conversation has gone so fast, but it's been very insightful. Just like the last thing I would like you to add on is that where can people get in touch and get this knowledge? Is it just like the perfect place is Twitter? We even created a small Twitter community inside Twitter. So is the best way for people to get in touch is to use Twitter or do you have any other preferred, you know, media? Well, I like to read. Um, I like I, I on everything we try to find books that we're interesting, and I'm happy to to share with your audience. You know, later on in your podcast, we can share some titles of books that we think that are useful. Maybe one I show, which very few people will know, but um, you know, I think it's highly relevant, right? So there is a guy called Vaslav Smil. And so maybe that's what people like to read. Energy transitions, right? And then, yes, please follow us on Twitter. And I think try to um, really, um, uh, if commodities interest you, there has never been a better time to read up on them and and um, and, and reach out to us. We, we we share ideas that we have to to. And, you know, learn more about them. And, um, and I think if you follow us on Twitter, you, we are very open-minded when it comes to sharing. I think this is a world where swarm intelligence is kind of uh, what, what keeps you out of trouble. And that's why I like to share my ideas. And then if someone comes and says, oh, you're so silly, you didn't see that, that's kind of where we can help each other, right? Definitely. I can just say from my behalf, I mean, I learned so much from re reading the reports and also just following you on Twitter. So I definitely think that's a very good place to start. So maybe just say that I have many more questions, but I want to save that for part two in the future. So, I mean, I just want to thank you for your time and that it was a delightful uh, thing to have you on finally.
thanks a lot for having me. This is the first time, obviously we are a small shop, and but hopefully we have more of those in the future. Uh, I really enjoyed it, it was fantastic. Thanks a lot for having me. If you liked this episode and the content we create, please make sure to check out our newsletter called The Bin Letter. More information is in the show notes. If you want to watch this episode as well, please head over to our YouTube channel and make sure to subscribe to the channel. This episode was produced by William Fransen.